0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Last week we began this Advent season by looking at the Magi, those visitors from the East surrounded by so much folklore and myth. But in reality, little is actually known about them. Don said that more than likely that they could have been from the area of Petra in Jordan, and known as the Nabataeans, and that the Nabataeans had a shared history with the Jews through Abraham, and they would have been really intrigued, really fascinated, really engrossed by the declaration that a new king was going to be born. He added that the gifts that they brought of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were common in that area and they were the ordinary currencies, they were the ordinary commodities of the Nabataeans. They were their stock in trade as it was. And that the rub, the lesson for us being here at Christmas once again, and the theme of honoring Him is to honor Him with our gifts this Christmas. So bringing those things that are uniquely us, bringing those things that are natural to us and offering them, as it were, at the foot of our Savior. Could be a kind word, it could be a smile, it could be hospitality, it could be a gift of administration and music and so on. But who we uniquely are, bringing them to Christ. So today, we come and consider further what are some of the things, the gifts that we can bring to Christ, not only at Christmas, but in reality throughout the whole of the year that will bring him the most pleasure? What is it that delights the Father heart of God? How can we please him in the everyday when in truth it's fair to say that he has everything? Today I'd like to look at three things, three aspects of our life that unmistakably show where our hearts and our attentions lie. And these are our time, our energy, and our money. and our money. Admittedly, they may not be the most comfortable aspects of our life to look at or to give scrutiny to, but they are the windows to our lives and our souls, and ultimately, our priorities. They may be cliched, but they are incredibly insightful, and what we discover may challenge us. As I have prepared for this morning, I have been challenged around some of the aspects of my own life that has made me somewhat uncomfortable, but in a good and challenging way. The statement that says we always have time for what we really want or wish to do may have a bite to it, but it is nevertheless true. One sociologist writes that the biggest triple challenge to our life is to own our own time, energy, and money, and to use them for what we consider to be most important and lasting. So hopefully to help us do this, I want to focus our attention today on Luke's account of the shepherds being told the good news of the coming of Jesus and how they respond. We shift from the Magi and we come and look at the shepherds and two things in particular will flow through what I shared this morning and I'll I'll keep coming back to them with with references. First of all, this is clearly and obviously this is Luke's gospel. Luke is is telling the story from his perspective with his priorities and his bias as it were or his passion coming to the fore, and this is important for us to understand. This man who is incredibly educated, incredibly articulate, and he's organized, and he, that comes across in his, in his narrative. And secondly, that I will keep coming back to, is how the shepherds respond in, is full of insight for each and every one of us. Sometimes we read the story with familiarity, but sometimes we need to see it afresh. I'll come back to that. Luke chapter eight, Verse two, uh, chapter two, verses eight to 20, goes like this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been <coughs> told them. There is so much in the response of the shepherds that I believe can help us so much today. When we read the statement, let us go to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us, we don't in the English pick up the urgency that is implied in the original. We read it so often, we we read it, we know it, we can do it verbatim, but sometimes that makes let miss something of the original that is there. The two phrases, let us go and see, are coupled together in the English and in the original. And in English, they are known as hortative, which means the coming together of two subjectives And implying something is special about these two phrases. And on this occasion, it implies that there is a feeling there. There is a mood there. There is a, a passion involved with let us see and let us go. Let's go and do these things. And the writer is saying that there is real, real urgency in the shepherd's response. He is trying to communicate it. I think the only way that I can think of it something in English is when unfortunately I may be shopping and I need to get home and I have to say to Hope, Hope, we need to go home. There's rugby on telly. Let us go. <laughs> that is hortative. That is the urgency. Probably more no, I was going to say more important, though I can't say that. There was real urgency in this original. Literally, the Greek translated here means they kept on saying to each other, Let us go. Also, here in the Greek text, there is a partitive and it is a a particle I should say, and it's literally two letters, and it's D-E and the d which follows let us go, and it's hard to translate, and some translations choose not to translate it, however, some others do try and show it, and they use the phrase let's go now. Let's go straight away, let's go immediately. I say this to highlight the truth from Luke's text, it's clearly an urgency about this that we need to see. There is an urgency in the Christmas story about responding to, the gospel, responding to the good news of this child that if we just read it like we always do, we run the risk of losing something that is in the original. The response of these shepherds conjures up an interesting question that we may or may not have time to look at later on. But what did they do with the sheep? Who was gonna take care of them? Who was going to feed them? Who was going to watch over them? I think I probably would have been too incredibly sensible to have gone. I'm just so practical, what we do with the sheep? What we going on, what's going on here? In truth, we don't know, but we do know that they had been invited to begin a journey with a newborn Messiah that would transform their lives and absolutely nothing was going to be more important to them. I think that these shepherds in this story bring with them a challenge to each and every one of us. Over the years, I have heard many sermons about the shepherds at Christmas, And some of them have left me at best uncomfortable and sometimes uneasy. And it's just a personal thing, nobody's fault or just me being a bit quirky on this. You ask why, thank you. I've heard preachers say that these men were just shepherds, as if they were virtually unemployable, that they were social outcasts, but because they lived every day with smelly sheep, that they were on the low social economic scale, and we have no record of them bringing gifts to Jesus, so, well, they must have been poor. None of this we can really prove, and in essence, it doesn't matter, but many sermons have been preached around that. I actually believe that in fact history, accurately interpreted, may well teach us that they weren't simple shepherds, but they were the shepherds that took care of the sheep that were specially taken care of and prepared as the Passover lambs in the temple. That these were shepherds, that these were the best, that they were highly trained, and they were purified to fulfill their very, very special role. Ignorant and smelly, they probably weren't. But what is crucial is not their job, but their heart, and their heart's response to the life-changing news of the Messiah. They embraced the coming Messiah, and let nothing get in their way to stop them from seeking Him out and following Him. I really don't think much has changed in regards to the response that God is looking for from His people and for the people whose lives have been transformed by his saving grace. He still looks for the same heart response in us and from what he got from these original followers. If I can put it like this, the seemingly unavoidable and inescapable truth this Christmas, it is you, it is me, that our Heavenly Father wants more than anything else. And whilst it is so simple, it is both true and profound. True and profound and yet so simple that we can miss it or dismiss it. You know, I don't know if you're at this stage, what are we two weeks out from Christmas, we're at that stage where we're ramping up those questions, what do you want for Christmas? And my kids are asking me, my wife's asking me, I'm asking the wife and I'll say, I'll think about it and another few days goes, be, goes by before I have to answer it. And you know, I used to be, my wife, I always used to say to Hope, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, oh, I don't want anything. And you know what I heard? I don't want anything. It always got me into trouble. Because I literally heard the words, I don't want anything. Well, that's what you want, sweetheart. I'll get you what you want. I'm a good husband. But now I've learned that please give me something. I don't wanna get it wrong. Please, and the the kids are saying, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And I'll say, I'll think about it. You know, simply what God wants for Christmas is us. It's our time, it's our energy, our money. It's easy, and yet it is so difficult. This lady writer that I spoke about about a month ago when we were looking at David really, has some really good things to to say. Her name is Anne Voskamp and she says this, so God throws open the door of this world and enters as a baby as the most vulnerable imaginable because he wants unimaginable intimacy with you. What religion ever had a God that wanted such intimacy with us that he came with such vulnerability to us? What God ever came so tender that we could touch him, so fragile that we could break him, so vulnerable that his bare, beating heart could be hurt. Only the one who loves us to death. As I was reading through some background for today and doing some research and thinking it through and praying some stuff through. I actually read an article that I wasn't intending to read but it really became the catalyst for where I want to go this morning with what we're looking at. So whilst I was bearing in mind where we were at, I was intrigued by a statistic, I was intrigued by an article that I read, and it it concluded that real communication of our values, our ideals, our priorities, are not through what we say. But our values, our ideals, those things dear to us, are communicated through our actions. And they say if we have 100% uh, of communication, 58% of how we communicate to our family, extended family, workmates and neighbors, 58% of that is through our actions and not through our words. They said that actually only 7% is only communicated by our words and 35% is by the tone of those words. 50% 50% of what I communicate to my family is through my actions. And I have to say, this really got me thinking in light of where we're at with this Christmas story. And the question that I want to ask myself, and therefore I invite you to be part of this, is what is my doing saying? That may be a bit complicated, but what is my doing saying? The challenge that flows from this is that our actions show what we really believe, the words of our works and our actions speak with a powerful and sometimes powerful eloquence about what we truly believe and what we see as important. So this Advent, as we focus on the theme, so to honor him with the ordinary things of life, such as our time and effort and money and what we do with them have to be up for discussion, otherwise we are being disingenuous to this subject. We have to look at these areas of what are, that are important to us. I so love the response of the shepherds, and it says, when the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said one to another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered what the shepherds had told them. They heard, and they went, and they found, and they followed, and I love it when it says in the Amplified version, like only the Amplified version can, it says, they by searching, found. They searched out and found where this baby. They weren't going to miss. The shepherds searched. They were dedicated and committed to seeking him out. May I suggest that the way we think about this hugely shapes how we live our life. May I also say that the shepherds' response was pretty incredible in my opinion. I believe it could have been perfectly possible for me and perhaps you to have talked myself out of going to see this baby that night. I could have easily found myself looking around to see how everybody else responded and not just me. Was I, were they excited, were they nervous, were they dismissive or were they as excited as they should be? Had I just seen a simple operation? Had I seen something that was because of something that I had eaten, Had something happened but it demanded a response from me that I was going to go with my colleagues and search him out. Then the question, as I said earlier, can we really afford to leave the sheep? It could affect my income. If the owner or the high priest found out I could lose my job, what if we were mistaken? And quicker than you know it, we have talked ourselves out of acting in faith and missing out on something that he has for us. What is my doing really saying in my life? Not sure I would have not gone, but I really would have given it some thought. I have been challenging myself as to what is the language of my life communicating to those around me. What are my unspoken messages about my faith? One of the things that (laughs) impacted me hugely is about 20 years ago, I met a young guy We're both not so young now, we're both in our 50s. When he got saved, and I may have told you this story, but it's well worth uh, saying, he got saved when he was about 18 or 19, and he was so profoundly impacted by what God had done for him, that he said on the night that he got saved, Lord, I am gonna be ready to do anything that you want me to do. And the only thing that he could do to work out that he could be ready to do anything that God wanted him to do day and night was, he slept in his clothes. He went to bed every night, he's a sensible guy. Well, not, well, not too bad. <laughs> but he went to bed every night for about two years and he slept in his clothes because he wanted to be ready just in case God said something that he had to do for him that night. You know, his faith has developed and he has worked some of those things out, but he still has a life that is ready to do whatever God wants him to do. He may not wear his clothes at night, his name's Stephen, he may not wear his clothes at night, but he lives his life with a passion that whatever God wants him to do, he will be ready to do it, and he will go. And you know, sometimes he has got it wrong, but he has never lost that passion. And I ask myself, do I have that passion, that hunger for his things, like I should? Of course it will look different for each and every one, but do I still have that? It demands my soul, my life, my all. I think for the for the shepherds, they could say yes. Francis Chan says it like this: True faith manifests itself through our actions. Fifty-eight percent of what I c- communicate is nonverbal, but my passion still comes through. Another question I ask myself, and it's, it's somewhat linked: Am I still prioritizing the things of God like I once used to? You know, I. I I'm a bit grumpy this morning, so forgive me. But you know when somebody really get when they get saved, and they have a passion for God, and they're all out for Him, and we may not even say it like this, but this is how it comes across. Well, they'll get over it. You know? Oh, they'll, 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 they'll calm down. They'll get over it. We may not verbalize it like that, but that's sometimes what we think, and I think that that is horrendous. Yes, it needs to be guided and crafted, but please don't lose something of that passion that you had. There are so many things that clamor for our attention and devotion, and I'm sure that you have a list as long as your arm like I do, but the things that are priority in our life are huge indicators to where our heart is. As we come to honor him, I believe it is not only relevant, but I think essential that we take a moment and ask ourselves, what am I really seeking in life? What am I really seeking in life? Not just the the theory of yes, we're Christians, we we know we're gonna heaven, we're gonna be with Jesus, but between then and now, what am I really, really seeking? What am I looking for? The newborn babe or some other distractions? What do I spend my time thinking or talking about? And how do I invest the majority of my time and energy? What drives us? I always find the passage in Revelation 2 verses one to seven when John writes about the church in Ephesus incredibly challenging. I have been a Christian virtually all my life and when I read this and I read it regularly because it does challenge me, I am challenged by my first love. I'm just gonna read these verses to you. Revelation two, verses one says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear the spirit, What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The first means first. The first means foremost in the sense of time and place and order of importance. That's what that word means. It is quite unequivocal what is being asked here. And so to honor him first, is a question that has been asked the church at Ephesus. You know, what had happened? What has gone wrong? Ephesus was a bustling and busy commercial center in Western Asia where the church was founded in about AD 60. If you came to Ephesus, if you've done any research or have studied on it, it was a quite amazing city. It was a city of approximately a quarter of a million And as you walk down the main thoroughfare, there was a wide, marbled, arched thoroughfare called the Arcadia, which is still there today in part. The streets were absolutely magnificent. They were edged with marble, marble pillars. The streets were edged on either side with theaters, temples, libraries, public baths. You'd walk down the street and there would be a little sign that would say, follow that pathway and it would take you into houses of prostitution and brothels. It was a bustling city of the first century that had all that was incredibly difficult to live in the midst of it. And this church was still living in the midst of it. It it had a a memorial or a monument, I should say, to the fact that it had a sizable Jewish presence in the city. On the one end of the street you could walk down and look at is the theater that is mentioned in Acts 19, which held something like 24,000 people. Prominent on the outskirts of the city was the Temple of Artemis. 129 meters long, 73 meters wide, 60 meters high, supported by 117 columns, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this is where the church lived. And this is the church that is being challenged. This is where the Ephesian church functioned and lived. It is a bustling, pagan culture. And one can only imagine what the pressures that those people faced to be Christians in the midst of that. If we think it's hard today, I think this is much harder. And we're told that Jesus is thrilled and pleased with what he says, I know your hard work. They're hard working, they have challenges, they are patient and they have a lot of endurance. They have not grown weary, they were orthodox, they were fundamentalist in a good sense. They believed the right things and they did many things that a good and active church had done. The deacons helped the poor, the elders made family visits and gave spiritual directions. The members visited each other and they even had home groups and everyone pitched in. Sounds a pretty good church to me. Especially in the context of where they lived and what they had to do and had to work out their salvation. And then comes this challenge but something was wrong. You have lost that love that you first had. We don't really know why or the reasons that led up to this. You see, It comes back to this incredibly basic, simple question that each and every one of us have to, I believe, ask ourselves and it's a good time of the year to do such a thing. Have we lost something of the incredibleness of what he has done for us? Have we become accustomed to his face? The song from My Fair Lady, for those of you who are wondering where that phrase comes from, I've become accustomed to her face. Have I become accustomed to ah, Christmas? I wouldn't say it like that. I'm I've walked with Jesus so many years, you know, my 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 faith is good and secure, and I do some of the disciplines. But I have I lost something of that oh. He came. He died. He rose again. He is coming again. Man, he deserves to be my first love. And I find Revelation 2 always challenges me, and this week, especially in the light of what Lauren said last Sunday morning when she was leading worship. They felt as a team that there was a real sense of being invited as a congregation to take a fresh look at Christmas this year. Remember, she was sitting at the keyboards and she said, I really believe and we as a team, this morning as we were in prayer, that God is calling us to have a fresh pair of eyes on Christmas, that we come and see it anew, that we come and see it afresh, my phrase, not hers, and not with the same tired eyes of familiarity. It is the thrill of the story that God through Jesus stepped into time and space and executed his plan of salvation so that we could have relationship with him as wonderful as it once was. I know we go through seasons. I know there are ups and downs. But this is a good season to come back and be calibrated. One rabbi says it like this, the greatest blessing of all of life is the gift of relationship with the master of the world. Next question I was asking myself this week. Am I living a busied life or a hurried life? Whenever such a subject as time and energy and money is discussed, we are always confronted by the huge demands of our times and our busyness in our life. They are there. We can't dismiss them. We just can't run away from them. We are all busy people. So as I was thinking, about today's message, I came across this quote which was new to me, although the writer is long in eternity. Dallard Willard says it like this, hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. This really, I have to admit, got me thinking. How do we live lives that are calibrated right before God and still do what we need to do with all the demands that we face. Is there a difference between hurry and busy? And I think that there is an important distinction to be made especially in this season. Jesus always seemed to be busy meeting people, healing, teaching and so much more but he never ever seemed hurry. He spent time with people and talking with them and being involved in people's lives and yet he had time for friends for solitude and time away with his savior. I don't think Jesus was ever hurried, but he was incredibly busy. The distinction, I believe, is this, that busy is something that is outside of us, outside of our hearts and minds. We have places to go, people to see, assignments to fulfill, problems to address, and so much more. But hurriedness is slightly different. Hurriedness, on the other hand, is very personal and it is very internal. And it mainly happens up here. That we allow the busyness of life to affect us and to hurry us and to help us become rushed and frenzied and hectic and continually playing things over in our mind. Busy can be to do with doing too much not saying no, not establishing boundaries, or simply bad planning. Hurry or hurriedness comes or it produces a sense of isolation while no one really understands me and, gets, and I'm caught up with stuff. So this is in relationship to our theme to honor him. I believe that we can live busy lives, but I do believe that God does not want us to be hurried. John Mark Comer says a hurried life and a spiritual life are incompatible. I came across this chart, hope it comes up. I give the credit to the guy, you can go on his his website, Pete Wilson, and he talks about it, but it really is, and I'm just gonna talk about it for about 30 seconds. (coughs) Being busy means that we have a full schedule. Preoccupied means when all we think about is being busy that we become frenzied and hurried and frenetic. Being busy means that we have many, many activities, but we do them. Hurried means that we have many activities, but we're unable to be fully present when we're with people who are not involved in that situation. How often have you sat down at meals with someone and you know they are not fully engaged with you, that their mind is elsewhere, that is hurried. Busy is an outward condition that we can rectify. Inner conditions of the soul start to get afraid when we become too busy. Busy is physically demanding, it makes us tired, that's the reality of life. Physically drain, draining means that physically, spiritually, and mentally, we are not in the place that we should do, and it is getting worse. Being busy reminds me I need God. Being hurried causes me to be unavailable to God and I haven't got time to pray, to fast, to worship, or come to church. My life is too busy. That becomes hurried. I found that a really, really helpful little chart. And some of this is hard and quite difficult to tie up. When Jesus says in scripture, come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened from your work and cares, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble-hearted, and you will find rest for your souls. That is quite contradictory to most of the ways we live our lives. Very quickly over the last, no pun intended, but over the last few months I have been tracking, which is something I didn't know about 12 months ago, that's why I've been tracking. It's called hurry sickness. A condition that has disproportionately affected more and more people, especially across the first world. And two definitions that I found particularly insightful are here, hurry sickness is a behavior pattern characterized by continually rushing and, ang- and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. And the second one says, a malaise in which a person finds themselves chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and gets flustered when encountering ev- any kind of delay. This is not where we're gonna sh- ask for a show of hands. You know, it's quite insightful and challenging and begs the question, does our Heavenly Father really want us to live lives like that? I am sure that there are some of us who are old enough. You know when you used to say to your mates or you used to say to your wife, hey, we've got some spare time next week. What are you gonna do? Remember that? You used to say to your mates, you know when you've got some spare time, let's get together. Let's go and do something. Or let's go for a run. Spare time, I think that's one of those phrases that's committed to history, isn't it really? Nobody seems to have any free time, we try to sustain life at breakneck speed even. But sooner or later, we will mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually fall apart. I read of a church (coughs) that is currently in the state of building a brand new building, a super auditorium. It's It's in Oregon, I think it's in Portland. And in their build, they are installing, as you come in through the doors, um, a rack of where you can put your mobile phones. So when you come in, this is, this is a church that's a, a young congregation that appeals to millennials, it appeals to all ages, but when you come in, you are asked, stroke required, stroke told, you have to leave your mobile phone. And you have to put it in and you get a locker key, and, the, and, you, and you have it back at the end. And as I said, this is not a congregation of my age, this is a young, focused millennial. Attractive Church, and they are finding that after the initial response, people are loving it. They are absolutely loving it. For the hour and a half that they're in, they can't check a fact that the pastor has just said. (laughs) I think we should bring this in next week. When you come back in the new year, we will have refurbished the foyer, and you will all have. (laughs) This is where I don't look at my wife because she would say to me, just stop and keep going. They say the people are absolutely loving it. They're encouraging people to talk to the person next to them seeing that they can't look at their tablets or their phone. And they are encouraging people to bring their Bible, you know, have the the book in their hands and have the rustle of paper and people are absolutely responding to it and the change has been overwhelming and people seem more relaxed and the feedback that they're having is that people are more relaxed and at home and there's something happening even in a short space of time. Isn't that interesting? Personally I believe that the Advent story with the coming of the newborn Christ as I referenced earlier is taking upon ourselves of his yoke which is actually not a calling to addition. When you get saved, it doesn't mean you add things to your life. It is a life of subtraction where our lives, where they used to be once incredibly busy, have become less hurried. The call is to simply live a life that is at peace with him and secure in him, that revolves around him, rich in his love and his joy and in his security, That security and acceptance that is not found anywhere else or in our peer groups or with our friends, but in him alone. A mindset that says, I don't need to do that because so and so is doing it, so I really have to do it. Or my kids need to have that because someone else's kids go to this class. Or perhaps as simply as saying, you know, I'm gonna cut some things out and slow down and spend some more time with Jesus and enjoy his company and I may create a few more hours to spend time with him. Maybe I won't go to the gym. Maybe I won't watch Netflix tonight or go to social media with opinions of others that I care far too much about, but who in reality don't mean anything to me, are looking for me to post something, make way for me to stop and deal with the hurriedness of life so that I can give something of my time and energy back to him. Very quickly, question, we've talked about time and energy, said very little about money. You know, I've just got four lines down here. It says, in truth, there is very little I've got to say, apart from this fact, these two facts. If he's got your heart, then he's got your money. If he hasn't got your money, then I'm not sure he's got your heart. That between our Savior and us, There is nothing that I'm gonna say in the next five minutes about money that he won't have to do in the next weeks and months. Money is very, very simple. He either has it or he doesn't. You know, Billy Graham says, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of our life. Musicians, please. (coughs) When God speaks I believe it is really important that we take appropriate action. The message of Christmas calls us to action. For some, God calls us to the most basic and essential action is to give him our life. For the rest of us, he wants our all. He's not looking for our admiration. He's not calling for our approval. He wants our heart and our life and this Christmas. And today it's about giving him our time energy and resources because of what he has done for us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.